So not only are there different contexts for leftism uh, mm -hmm. geographically, but also it, it differs within a certain region as well. So you'll have all different people, different sorts of people with diverging and contradicting views, all calling themselves leftists. Mm -hmm. I think what I could say about leftism uh, as a uh, as a definition could apply universally, which is uh, towards someone who works toward the project of universal emancipation, but more locally, I guess, we'll have to speak in historical terms to understand what the uh, scope or spectrum of leftism is like. Yeah, and then, and they'll, and they'll be, if you're talking about early 20th century, that would be different from post 80s as well. There's, there's a slight gap between those two periods, quite big one, especially in South Korea. I don't know what to make of the left in North Korea. That's, that's I think, something of a black box until we start actively engaging and having much more freer uh, exchanges. And then maybe if, I don't know, trade union activism props up in the Kaesong industrial region, maybe if we can start talking about leftism. I think that's a really interesting place to start. So rather than talking about historical developments and theoretical understandings and labels of what left is, more in terms of are there certain principles or, or, or things that affect you in your day-to-day -day life? So avoiding that sort of big leftist umbrella that means different things to different people. I guess more to you personally, how does that manifest in your actual life in terms of your beliefs or your attitudes towards certain things that might differentiate you from other people? Hmm. I guess historical determinations first. I live in South Korea. I guess leftists here tend to not use the official state names, Republic of Korea or Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as being sort of like critical of the status projects overall. So what so, do they use instead? South Korea, North Korea. Okay. Simple as that. Uh, In Korea? So South Korea was built on the basis of anti-communism. Like that's, that's the foundation of the country. So what it means to be a leftist has to be, has to be thought on those bounds. Starting like how, how the Republic was set forward despite uh, the Korean people's aspirations for an independent nation, uh, the U.S. propped up a, a separate election in the South first, which led to the Republic of Korea being founded. Uh, the Civil War, the Korean War after that, uh, was, this is a very hard to speak of topic, especially in a public setting, but I don't think it's it could be seen as simply a war of aggression by the North. It is, in a certain sense, a civil war of trying to unify the country once again. I wouldn't stop there and say that it's still like that till this day because 70 years has passed. And th that that's more than enough time for legitimacy of a state to be posed in its own terms. But the National Security Act that's still uh, active to this day and is precisely the reason why one uh, it should be a bit careful and conscious when speaking about the origins of the Korean War in the first place, uh, was put into place at that period, trying to suppress communist leftist elements, or not even leftist, autonomous, independent elements were just propped up and massacred, disappeared. And this is this is why there is a gap of a Korean left but before the Korean War, and, and there was a huge gap that only kind of not disappeared, the gap still exists, but the Korean left only re-emerged because of that suppression. Historically, yeah, anti-communism anti is the basis, is the foundation for this country. Yet, there is a strong, there has been a strong re-emergence of Marxism, of leftism, intellectuals embedding themselves in mass movements, being critical. At, th at that time, it was a military dictatorship. Even after liberalization, one could still debate how much it was properly liberalized, democratized, etc. Those problems posed by those last movements, which leftists tried to prop up, tried to create harness, have them been, be built. I think that's the legacy that I think I can identify directly 
the tradition that I find, I find identify myself in. Although, although I do read Korean communism and think of those as my seniors as well, because the contradictions of anti-colonialism that's still it's still it's still something that we on the Korean Peninsula have to deal with. So there's that. Uh, on a more independent level, I guess, uh, on a personal level, being a leftist or identifying as a communist would mean that you not fitting in. Uh, it's like pulan, pulhua, pulhua, discordance, maybe uh, in a troublemaker. That's that's too uh, egoistic. Disagreement, conflict. Uh, I, I guess I don't think all leftists, all people that in one or other ways identify themselves as leftists would put it in these terms. But I think of a communist in Korea as being constantly trying to represent conflicts that they find important. So it could be it could be um, embedding yourself in the workers' movement, in trade unions, in uh, working in labor organizations. It could be uh, being a member of a women's organization, protesting for uh, women's rights, especially in terms of anti-sexual violence or reproductive justice, stuff like that. It could be sexual minorities. I've, I've just read a, an article that uh, had trans men uh, accepted as a man without going through without going through physical surgery of removing her, his ovaries. That's the first case being uh, passed through the court. That is like massive discordance because thinking about how citizenship is defined uh, and those that don't fit that mold are discriminated against and how social systems are built upon those expectations but it's also, I guess, it also involves not just existing as an individual, but acknowledging that that universe, project of universal emancipation is a collective effort. So uh, organizing, working towards, uh, working with others, uh, being part of something bigger, aspiring for that, that molds how you approach things, I guess. Being respectful, being trying to being respectful of differences, not just trying to uh, rify them, being condescending, thinking that you know better, not that, but acknowledging that differences exist and sometimes other people have it harder than you do. How, how do you accommodate for that? Uh, I think this is, uh, this is another ethical stance that derives from trying to build something towards something bigger. And that's that's what I've been taught through the, all those drinking sessions with my seniors. You've thrown a lot at me, Bori, and there's a lot I want to get into. I want to get into the opening up in the 1980s of the leftist movements that you mentioned. I want to talk about the morality and the ethics of it all, as well as the movement towards social and ethnic uh, and sexual minorities. But if I could just go back to the first part of what you were talking about, which was that uh, South Korea was founded on the basis of anti-communism. And I, I want to start here, perhaps. How does patriotism work in this? There's military service that comes into this topic. Uh, I, I guess I wouldn't frame it as a pro or con, being for or against patriotism. Or I guess the term used more often is nationalism. Patriotism is too tied in with love for the nation state, with the liberal, uh, the republic, the liberal democratic republic and it's really thrown at you starting from a very young age in school and for men in the military and through all all its all its propaganda so i think there's a very easy case to make for a lot of people being cynical against that notion of, of, of that patriotism because especially in the military for men that's that's the entire justification that word patriotism patriotism for your family that you are guarding your family your country against the northern menace and that justifies the entire misery that you have to put through for during your service years yet nationalism is 
a very contentious topic, especially since a, a large portion of the left identify themselves as nationalists in one, one sense or another. Personally, I, I, don't, I don't pose it in terms of nationalism. I pose it in terms of anti-colonialism or anti-imperialism, resisting against larger systems of dominance. As those systems of dominance, like there are several, uh, several levels to it, several different opposing, conflicting, uh, competing systems as well, which we can see with the rise of China. These are all, uh, this is a technical term, uh, overdetermined in, in determining our social systems. It's the solidarity in the negative sense, a solidarity that comes from resisting against something of a larger system of dominance that is the basis for, for being proud of something. So I don't know, maybe this, is, this could be an example. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been cynical about patriotism to my country from a very early age. That's from what I remember. But the first time I got really emotional from listening to sort of an anthem was the, the international. So that, that sense of tragicness of all the people that tried to aspire and put up their lives for something better, and a, lot of, a majority of them not ever being, getting to see that, identifying in that larger tradition of struggle that's that's something that I can I can I can buy, not something as something established, but something of resisting together. That's the that's the place I think I can find universality, and and that's the place where I can speak of internationalism, and start conversing with people in completely different contexts. That that common understanding that we have a larger thing that we can struggle against together, that's that's the basis. How do you get into that? Because you mentioned sort of perhaps having a little bit of cynicism towards the nation, but finding solidarity, finding camaraderie in the international and those uh, those more global movements of resistance. In South Korea, my experience, and you've touched on it with the national security law, I've had professors skip over chapters of Marxism in books in graduate school and things like that. They won't even address it or or touch upon it. How do you get into it? How do you find it? I know now we have the internet and everything, but how does it develop in South Korea or how would someone get into it when it has been so oppressed as a belief system or as a thought, as a as an idea at the very least? I think a very, a very common way of saying it is blaming, blaming the fact that you've met bad seniors and, and university. That's that's the usual story. You have this sense of justice. You don't know how to direct it. You don't have a systematic understanding of society. What places that you have to start. You don't know. You don't have a sort of understanding of how social change happens. But you go into university. You meet these people that seem to have a good sense of justice. That seems to place their bodies where it matters. Going to protests and actively like risk risking their necks for something. And then curiosity starts and you want to know what they see, what is, what is out there. You have, your, you have your skepticisms, you have your reluctances that's been hammered throughout your lives. I think this is the process or pathway of politicization, some, in a more cheesy sense, radicalization. But it, there is this process of going through it. I think that it's not something established, it's something that you go through your entire lives. But... There's an initiation process, and usually that starts, at least for me, it should be more diversified. It doesn't have to be just university. It can be other pathways as well. But for a lot of dedicated militants, a lot starts from the student movements, and that starts in university. That's that's how, that's the trajectory of South Korea social movements, especially its hegemonic um, hmm demonic state after the 80s i might bring up some names that you might disagree with and so that's why i'm gonna perhaps give them to you when i was reading people such as enam he's work on the minjung movement what i found fascinating by that work was two ideas the first one that university students would 
would get fake IDs and go into factories and things like this to try to tell people of their rights, of their solidarity. And so just like you were saying at university, but then it sort of went out into society and factories and the laborers. The other thing that I noticed um, on that was that these ideas were often coming from the elite universities. And I, I find a wonderful paradox in that. And it was also like later on that the first LGBT communities would come out in the elite sky universities. So do you have any opinion on the idea of university students then taking these ideas to the workers? And then the question of that being, well, are they the workers' ideas or the university people's ideas? And also the fact that these ideas seem to be coming, at least how I read it, from the, the elite universities. So yeah, there definitely is. I, I don't want to simplify it, but it is a contradiction there and it exists, but it's also how things work. Ina means, you're talking about her uh, book, The Making of Minjung, right? Mm, yeah, that's right. It's, 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 it's a fascinating work, and, I, and I, I ponder about it often because I don't think anyone would claim that South Korea social movements are at its peak right now. So there's this sense of loss, this sense of melancholia, which is touched upon Anglosphere literature as well. But I think Inanhi kind of situates that in a Korean context about the rise and fall of the notion of Minjong. Mm. But that, that wasn't your question. It was more about how the radicals start out from elite universities and go out to the masses. What, mm. how, how does one address that discrepancy? Mm, that's uh, it. I ask it respectfully as well, by the way, because it's something that oh, I sure. don't know how to explain. Yeah, I guess in orthodox Marxist terms, it's called the merger formula, where there is already a sort of workers' movement that fight for their own rights that has risen spontaneously. Spontaneous here in the sense that not uh, directly identifiable as Marxist. And then you would have the Marxist intellectuals, party cadre, and how do you merge these things together? It's a very central problem. How does these ideas of how to build a better world, where do these come from? And then what, what are intellectuals' roles in permeating, disseminating, propagandizing, spreading the word? This difference, how, how do you address that? I guess like there are several ways to approach the question. I'm, I'm not certain how to answer it from the question you've posed. I had thought about intellectuals' rules, but I guess one point would be that it's not particular to South Korea. Right. Uh, but what is particular is the extent of this, like the centrality of the students' movement, how it's still tied into social movements at large. So a lot of uh, militants, activists, and the feminist movements and the LGBTQ plus movements um, in the more older generations, starting from, I guess, 30s and upwards, they all have one like experience in student organizing, more or less, even if it's like in a, in a rejection of leftist politics, they've all dabbled in it in one, one sense or another. It's because student politics, student movement, the student movement provides space where you can really develop your capacities to organize people. Mm. Uh, starts out with people that you can ident identify with more directly, like-minded people with from more or less similar backgrounds and the strong uh, culture of bond bonding. That's, that's your uh, mass base. And then when you go out into society and to other social movements, you use that experience and enlarge in it, uh, engage with other forms of the masses. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned about the role of seniors uh, at university and also some of their actions going out into society, how militant they might have been. Now, I want to ask you about how physically dangerous it might have been in South Korea during the 70s, during the 80s. Because when we talk about elite ideas and things like this, it sounds very safe and theoretical and ivory towers, but I've always tried to come to grips with how violent South Korean society was, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, how dangerous it was. So what's your take on 
the physical danger that these seniors, these people would have been in in that society? Was it that bad? Was how do you see it? It's it's something I find incomprehensible in some senses as well. I haven't lived under a military dictatorship. I was born in '95, so safely after liberalized uh, formal liberalization, but. Uh, protests were still quite violent until the 2000s. The Molotov cocktail only disappeared, uh, I think, in 2004 or after. So it's 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 still in quite recent memory. That disappearance and all discussions of non-violent, peaceful protests has like it has lingered for quite some time. You can trace it back to the height of it in I think 1991. Uh, the May protests that uh, that started with Kang Yongdae's death being hit by the baton of the riot police. And there were discussions of peaceful protests then back then as well. But it, I don't think it. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's a it's an experience that I haven't personally gone through. I can only refer to it secondhand. Like there is a sort of ethos that comes out from it, I guess. 60s, 70s, we're talking about being under, even the 80s, being under the military dictatorship, where dif- disappearances were the norm. Perhaps with violence more broadly, I'm just going to cut in again. So, And I know this might be a very controversial thing. You might want to pass on the question. But we've spoken about sort of, or you've addressed roles and, you know, the morality, the solidarity. How do how does violence come into this? Because there are different approaches, and there's a whole spectrum of of what might be perceived as the best way, from non-violence to civil disobedience to engaging in action and such forth. So, uh, do you have a take on the necessity, the usefulness, the practicality? The how does violence play a role in your understanding of the South Korean leftist movement or what you try to do? As, as I've mentioned. Uh, when, when protests become really massive, mm. like the candlelight protests uh, that brought down President Park, ex-President Park, uh, there were discussions and I think sometimes almost very violent reactions, at least in a dis- discursive level, about the use of violence. So putting stickers on police buses would be deemed as being violent. That was even too much for civil disobedience. I think that's just this very puritanical. I don't I don't agree with that. But also, it's not that you can say that violence is necessary, that you want to advocate for violence, because we don't have the power of the state behind our backs. We're also always on on the defensive. What what it means that violence is necessary would be that a recognition that it can become violent and that would come from state repression first and foremost. But that said, that doesn't mean that violence isn't deployed by forces resisting as well. And that's a very thorny question. And if you ask me whether how the left or social movements in South Korea address this, that would be a much more sociological survey. But if you ask me what my thoughts on it would be, it would I think would be much more clear as I have theoretical resources to draw from, uh, in particular, the philosopher Etienne Balibar, who deals with this question of the lacune of Marxism dealing with violence. So you have, on the one hand, the justification for any sort of violence because it's counter violence, because it's a force of resistance. So uh, you'll have Trotsky uh advocating that the end justifies the means so that any any force used in the process is will be justified you can see excesses you can expect excesses coming from that and then you'll have the other hand the puritanical at uh non-violence uh, approach which i think is is just disarming yourself in the face of repression. I don't think that will be politically effective either. So what Balibar proposes is that you can't separate violence and politics. 
the effects of one always permeates the other. What we have is to tie those things together, always think of them together, and he proposes a politics of anti-violence. So how to create and intervene, create situations, conditions where extreme violence, excesses of violence don't break out. So in certain cases, you will have to make defensive measures. So if you, if you, if you advocate for nonviolence, say in the context of Myanmar, that's nonsense. Uh, the junta is hunting down anyone that doesn't seem to accept their uh, primary role in society. You, you have people bombing, rioting, uh, assassinating in those contexts. It's a very violent context, but that doesn't mean that every sort of act will be justified. You'll have to assess them on those own terms. And the ends would be trying to create the conditions where those extreme violences, massacres, don't break out. It's it's a very difficult question. Balibar doesn't talk about this to say that he holds any answers. And these are always precarious moments where you don't, there is no guarantee that you'll have a solution. But what I, what I think I find useful from him is that uh, you can still think of it. You can try to address it on its own terms. And I think that's very useful. Context matters and it needs to be addressed with inside a context rather than being ideologically uh, stuck in one position. It makes a lot of sense. If I try to jump forward a little bit, Bori, and, and you've spoken about this kind of leftist revival in the 1980s. What is a leftist revival? Because the 1980s we still see as kind of a very uh, politically tense time. We have, as well as anything else, we have we have the Gwangju massacre, we have Chunduwan's military, we have North Korea with the, the, the Myanmar bombing and the Korean air and all of this. It's a very heavy time, I think, the 1980s, and in, in Korea alone. And amidst all this, you have this leftist revival you've spoken of. So what is this leftist revival? Where does it come from and what does it look like? From my understanding, if we go up a bit to the, mm -hmm. the early 20th century, the independence movement, the anti-colonial against anti-Japanese movement, seeked resources uh, from both theoretical but also practical abroad. One, one primary source for inspiration was the Soviet Union. So a lot of nationalists uh, turned into communists after visiting uh, Moscow after 1917. But also the Comintern also funded a lot of the independence movements. And there was a particular interest in the Koreans' rules, both in the Japanese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party. And, and, and the Koreans played, played their role throughout the early 20th century. As I mentioned earlier, they were wiped out after the Korean War, throughout and after uh, the left lost its footing in, in the South. And there was no recovery until the 80s. And, and that's what I speak of as a reemergence. Now, how that happened would be Kwangju. So before that, the, the intellectuals critical of the military dictatorship thought of their alternative as a US liberal democracy. So from a military dictatorship to uh, a, demo, a, a system, a political regime with more formal rules that not, weren't arbitrarily deterred, where you'll have like voting rights uh, universally, et cetera. So there was this sense of, and I guess it just was, we, could, we have to put this into the context of the Cold War looming large and South Korea being the underpartner of the US. So even that was the ideological boundaries until the 70s. And all, although those intellectuals played uh, their roles in resisting against various things under, under the dictatorship, they, they, weren't, they were intellectuals. They weren't embedded in larger mass movements. But with Kwangju, with the massacre in Kwangju in 1980, after it's um, overtook the throne after Park. That cleared away a lot of illusions of what the U.S.'s rule was. There was a sort of rejection of the U.S. liberal democracy model. And 
if you, if you clear that out, what would be the alternatives? People seek out more radical uh, resources. One of them would be Marxism. And um, what, one of its central tenets would be the central rule the masses, especially the working classes, play in historical social change. And for that to happen, the intellectuals would have to go out and organize uh, or help, organ help them organize this themselves. So the 1987 uh, was the pimp turning point for South Korea as it formally liberalized. But before, before that, we also have the worker struggles of July, August, September, right? <laughs> yeah, of, of those three months. That, that wasn't, that, that didn't just break out spontaneously. That was, that was the result of a decade of underground organizing of students going out into the factories of playing, uh, of trying to let, of trying to create conditions where workers could organize themselves. A lot of that would involve the intellectuals putting the work in themselves because mm -hmm. they would have to teach literacy. They would have to teach the notion of having rights. And there's this much more educational model rather than pedagogical perhaps in, in, in those times. But yeah, that eruption happening in 1987 uh, didn't just erupt. There was a period of underground work before that. And mm -hmm. that, that was what I was referring to as the emergence of Marxism, of leftism in the 80s. It turned into a real mass movement, a real turning point for South Korea. And it's interesting to hear you describe it as a rejection of the American model, having seen what takes place in Gwangju, that they then alternative models are sought. Do you see from the 1987 and that period that build up that builds up to it, do you see any theoretical connection, practical connection, realistic connection between those 1987 movements and everything that led and the latter 2016 huge impeachments of ex-president Park Geun-hye. Are there similarities in that from the, the leftist perspective or are they completely different? These are two different uh, singular events. Okay. Uh, so also when I, when I talk about a rejection, I don't, I, I'm not saying that everyone rejected, but certain elements found it convincing to reject the liberal democratic model. A large portion of it, a large portion, but still a, a very small minority of intellectuals played a big role in starting to not just talk amongst themselves, but to actively uh, play a part in organizing the masses. Has, they, has that played a role in the 2016 protests? Certainly, in, in the sense that we were living in the aftermaths of that revival. There is like twists and turns here and there, but those mass organizations that developed after that period still exist in like in some cases, smaller capacities and other cases, bigger, uh, the KCTU having a over a million members. That's that's like uh, an achievement. That's, a, that's certainly a development from before. Those, the numbers, uh, we can talk about limitations, certainly, but that's probably wasn't imagined back in the 80s, right. that scale of numbers. If we take that Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, and I, I want to use that to bring us a little bit up into the modern age, they had a big movement on Wednesday this week. And what I noticed was, um, outside of social media, a kind of lack of media coverage of it, that it wasn't dominating the news it wasn't sort of big on the on the terrestrial television news or things like this so using that as an example and also thinking more broadly do you notice a lack of media attention on leftist movements is it am i looking in the wrong places i i seem to see an absence of this conversation sometimes taking place in korean society more broadly in the tv and the print media sure so the, what, the, what the KCTU did on Wednesday is a, a significant achievement in the sense that the government wasn't allowing any rallies or protests, citing COVID social distancing as a reason. The KCTU got 20,000 people out in the streets of Seoul itself. So that broke out of that res uh, restriction. And also, 
adding into the context that the chairperson of the KCTU, Yang Dongsu, is currently uh, locked up because of preparation for this protest on when that happened on Wednesday in the first place. That said, ignorance of what what happened. I usually don't look into mainstream news that often. If I take you up on your word, I would say that it's coming from. I wouldn't really say that they're completely ignoring it, but it's also very inconvenient if they don't have a frame to spin it in a negative fashion. One one method would be just to completely ignore it. We talk about liberalization. That doesn't make.、Uh, South Korea, a, a socialist state where labor rights are acknowledged, are protected, etc. It's, it's still a state of struggle, and traditional terms, we're still under a bourgeois dictatorship, and that makes it terrain for labor struggles very in the defensive. But when Wednesdays would be where they scored a point.、Mm. It's. I really agree with what you're saying in that it's hard for the media to frame a narrative around it because it's very easy.、Um, this evening they were already blaming foreigners for Halloween、uh, and COVID on the TV news. That was already the frame that's coming out, so it's set. And it's very easy for the media to pick certain groups. It would be hard for them to pick Korean workers. As the enemy in Korea on the television, that narrative doesn't quite fit. It, it presents this dissonance. Now, you sort of suggested this idea of a, a bourgeois dictatorship. A lot of attention, international attention, is now on Korea as the home of Squid Game, as the home of Parasite, as the home of class consciousness. That perhaps the possible next president, Lee Jae Myung, might come in and start implementing these things with his background. There would be two parts to this question. Is the first one would be: Do you have any comment or observation on how sometimes international media frames Korea in terms of these issues, in in terms of human rights presidents and Squid Game and Parasite? They're addressing these things. Does the outside view and the inside view correspond? The second thing would be: Do you have any comment about the possibly upcoming next president? Being a solution to labor troubles with his proclaimed background. Easy answer to the second question would be no.、Okay. There are no easy questions. Well, president holds a lot of administrative powers,、mm. but、uh, he's also there aren't any women candidates, so he he is also delimited by、uh, the form of the political system that he partakes in. Labor struggles, as long as we're living under capitalism, isn't going to be a problem that's solved under. So it's、not. it's structural rather than him as a person. It's a, it's more of a structural issue for you. Yeah, but I'll, I'll also say that I don't think any of the candidates that have any interest in trying to actively solve the problem are in positions of potentially winning the presidency in the first place. And that leads us back to question one.、Mm. And、uh, I guess my role right now is, I guess, all observing how South Korea. Registers foreign events, trying to identify and identify ones that could matter, and sharing that、uh, in, domestically. But also,、uh, yes, this the Squid Game international phenomenon, which I haven't watched, but I'm th- starting to think that I should probably watch it to、uh, preserve my Korean credentials. <laughs> but also, that spotlight with the general strike rally happening on Wednesday after that. Phenomenon, like having spotlight onto Korea, that was that was quite interesting because this rally is, it, it is a big event, it is significant, yeah. Yeah. it is something to be registered, but it's also an annual thing. It's not a one in several decades general strike.、Uh, just strike of that of the name proper happened in 1996, 1997 against、uh, structural reforms、uh, with the Labor Act being. Passed under Kim Yong-sam. I found coverage of South Korean politics very lacking, and and that's precisely the insularity I think that South Korean social movements have have in the first place. Like if if you're a foreigner and you see、uh, South Korea's metal workers union、uh, going on a march against to, against the riot police, 
in the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of leftists around the world watched, watched videos of that as riot porn because you don't mm. usually see workers go against riot police in an organized fashion and beat them up. That's, that doesn't happen often. That doesn't happen these days, but uh, what I was trying to get at was uh, the insularity. If you have interest, you've seen those videos, you want to get to know about South Korea's social movements, there's no resources out there that you can read up on. Uh, it's very lacking. And sure, you'll have uh, coverage of Korean history, of its culture, etc. But what about what are the central issues, the con contradictions? What are they debating with, amongst themselves? How do they understand Korean society? How do they understand the position of South Korea in the world, world system, capitalist system? How much value extraction happens? Like, what are the debates happening? Those things are completely incomprehensible outside. As long, even if you know Korean, if you don't know where to look, I struggle as well. Uh, trying to get at what's, what people are discussing in other organizations, etc. It's obvious that left coverage of South Korea would be very lacking as well. If you ask me about international coverage, it's, it's out of my purvey. I, I, I don't really care for it. I find it, find it amusing, but ultimately it's, it's not my focus. Now, you did mention Ijemil, and that's, that's another symptom of taking, if we were to take a responsibility, of the insularity of South Korea social movements because Lee Jae-myung is seen as a sort of alternative is one of the contentious points within uh, the left. Right. So if we, I guess, analogize it to the U.S. context, the constant struggle is the left's relationship to the Democratic Party. The saying applies to Lee Jae-myung. He is not a progressive candidate in any sense of the word, yet because he is of the Minju Party, uh, certain elements try to line up behind him, or with him, and try to, uh, I would say, opportunistically use that to gain some things. But I think that would be to the detriment to the social movement as a whole, because we've already seen what happened under the Moon administration, where lots of yeah. uh, independent citizen society organizations, after gaining funding from the state, have no grounds to uh, distance themselves from it and they become incorporated, which makes them lose their edge. That's, that would be furthered under Ijeno. So it's, it's sort of an internal contradiction, but it's still there. But also, I guess, if we are talking about left candidates proper, we, we shouldn't bring an Ijeno into the conversation. We would have, yes, this is also contentious, but we have would have Kim Sang-jung in the Justice Party. We would have uh, Kim Jae-on of the uh, Progressive Party. Of the, and then we would have the current uh, efforts in the KCTU itself in trying to provide a platform for progressive candidates to unify. It's, it's ongoing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very interesting effort trying to uh, be play fidelity to their principles of creating a political force that represents the working class in South Korea. All, all the fracturings that happened after the uh, Democratic Labor Party uh, attempt, uh, that was also a KCT joint of, uh, attempt. That After that failed, it all fractured. We're still living in the aftermath of that fracture. This kind of platform attempt is trying to address that directly. So, these would be the issues that would we would have to talk about if we were talking about uh, a left perspective of the presidential election. That that a lot of people are thinking of Lee Jae-myung as a sort of a progressive candidate shows how much that we're not being able to communicate that, that those sorts of things. That all those discussions are happening very internally and in 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 insularity. I'm very happy to hear you point to other. Um, politicians uh, that you find that are more suitable, whether they're from uh, the Justice Party or the Progressive Party, that's important, I think. If we go towards that sort of Justice Party idea, I, I want to, if I can ask you a little bit about the role of minorities in society, because uh, at the moment, if you read the press or the social media, South Korea is uh, engulfed in a gender war, 
and, and there there it's that's not quite the right framing that's there's a lot of hyperbole in that in the way it's done and in reality in the university classrooms it's not like that for the most part but there is a certain amount of tension at the moment now you've spoken about the the solidarity the the togetherness I noticed that if I'm allowed to say you use your pronouns in your Twitter bio and things like that. So this points to a, a certain awareness of minorities and rights and alliance and allyship. How does that play out in the leftist movement in South Korea? Is is there fracturedness like we see in broader societies? Is there more togetherness among sort of uh, men and women and the LGBTQ community. How, what's the state of that at the moment in the left from your perspective? That's a, that's another massive question because... Right. Uh, I'm curious. Sure. Social movements in South Korea are part of the totality. So obviously, contradictions that exist in the larger society exist within social movements as well. That said... Like one of the reasons on a personal level why mm. I'm attracted is constantly participate and try to dedicate uh, my time, energy, and also a longer period of my time of my life with within these perspectives, within these boundaries, is precisely because those differences may not always be successfully respected, but there's a commitment to doing so. And you can criticize uh those that don't like live up to those commitments personally i've been in male dominated spaces and i find those experiences very stressful and also very hard to bear with so i if i if i can i don't want to uh uh spend a large portion of my time in, in those sorts of spaces because there's this very sense of isolation when you go into those spaces. No one even registers what sorts of grievances occur there. We we'll all have to suck it up because that's uh, precisely what sort of masculinity is cultivated through uh, the, milit the citizenship tied with military service. Um, it's not safe spaces because that would indicate that you're cut off from a larger society that's not the point we're not trying to create utopia it's it's not even it's not even possible within certain boundaries you'll have to address the larger society anyhow but amongst your comrades that respectfulness can exist or you strive for that and you can you can openly talk about those issues amongst comrades or at least those are the grounds there's lots the failings, there's constant like sexual violence cases, etc. Obviously, those are serious issues that need to be addressed. They aren't always successful. Sometimes it's drastically uh, drastic failures. Um, I guess we we'll talk much more about my aspirations and the people I associate with. If yeah. we were to talk about how, how they actually exist, that's a, a totally another discussion we'll have to go into individual like individual cases like uh sexual minorities how, how what 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 role what place do they have vegetarianism migrant workers migrant workers are they uh chinese koreans that would be a separate category from mm -hmm. japanese koreans jainichis although they're, they're not mostly in korea and then migrant workers from south and southeast asia and then migrant workers in quotation marks from the white foreigners that come to make a living teaching English. Those are all different. Yeah. So, and, and, the, and the social movements that try to organize those mass elements would be different as well. You said something really interesting, which is that, um, you know, you, you want spaces that are not just all one thing, perhaps not all male, but I, I completely agree with you. I want to hear from everybody in society worth listening to as many people as possible because it just expands your vision. I want to finish on the idea of internationalism. But before I do that, one final topic before we get there, which would be North Korea. 
Now, listening to you speak for the, you know, the last hour or so, we have this idea that anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, a um, bit of autonomy and uh, sort of systems of oppression and removing those. And how does North Korea fit into this? Because it could be seen that North Korea, that's, that's North Korea. It's here. It's very close, but it's just not South Korea. It's in North Korea. So from your perspective, is is that North Korea? Is it doing it right? Has it misstepped along the way somewhere? Is it closer to what uh, you imagine South Korea should be? Or How do you play this out, Bori? It's really hard to come across information about North Korea, right? Uh, sound bites here and there that I pick up. For example, I recently watched part of a documentary filmed by a a German Korean. I think she was either adopted into Germany or is the child of Korean migrant workers, the nurses and the coal miners that were uh, migrated to Germany to earn foreign cash. Is it called Liberation? The documentary was. I don't remember the name, but yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there's a, there's a section where she goes into uh, this monument and the guide explains to her about the feats about the birthplace of uh, Kim Il-sung etc and I just find it very familiar in the sense that that's the way propaganda operates in South Korea as well so yes the the words are different you talk about uh, I guess fidelity to the revolutionary spirit the excellency of uh, Kim's etc but the format and the way it's delivered and how passively you have to receive that information is very similar. So I don't have any illusions about the superiority of the North. That said, I, I don't like the, the propaganda that comes out. Uh, News Tapa has recently delved into the documents of where, what the sources are for like international coverage, what happens in North Korea is. And a lot of time it comes from CIA funded uh, sources, like very obscure, no way, no way to confirm stuff like that. Like when there's a there's these jokes about the Juche necromancy, because these important figures just keep on coming back to life. So there's obviously a lot of bullshit around that. There's also a lot of misconceptions of what communism or socialism is. And there's also this uh, us them. Uh, I guess tribalism, if we can use those terms, mm-hmm. against North Korea as perceived as an enemy. In certain, in certain senses, it is. But my politics would try to pursue one that it no longer is. But anyhow, uh, in, in that sense, there's like people out you perceive or groups that you perceive as your other, you can like project ridiculous claims upon it. Mm-hmm. So rejection of that as well. But then what, what is left to fill in the details is something that can only happen with more exchange, whether that be on a cultural level or on that a personal level. And so I guess uh, peaceful coexistence and more culture exchanges to the extent where I guess trains are linked together, railways are linked, we can pass through South Korea no longer is technically an island and we can pass through North Korea, get onto the Siberian uh, line, go to Europe, not on a plane, but on a train. Like if that starts to happen, then we can see, like we can see for ourselves what holds up, mm-hmm. what the actual conditions of living is, wh- how they perceive of the system they live within. But before that, it's really just hard to comment. And I, I think a lot of time is just spent on rejecting ideological claims. Even without those concrete knowledge, there's still uh, there's still room for a, a practice, a practice of moving towards, of conceiving of movement, of uh, forcing the government to acknowledge North Korea as like not the legitimate state of the entire peninsula, obviously, but a little bit in the 70 years that has passed, we can talk to it as uh, the states can talk to them with them amongst themselves as a uh, legitimate 
players mm. they have like we can understand it from that perspective we can advocate for the denuclearization of the korean peninsula and have the u.s uh army leave it like peaceful coexistence like all these things can can be done without knowing the details of human rights or uh stuff like that the idea of recognizing north korea is, is of course an interesting one it's actually what I did my PhD on, you know, just recognizing its legitimacy as an as a nation in that part of the peninsula. I just ask you if I could about the idea then of the the Kim family. So you touched on the Kim Il Sung mausoleum and uh, and a woman visiting that. And so, as I understand it, from a leftist perspective, there's not this um, there's not a monarchy or there's not the uh, hereditary succession. And so when you look around the world, it wasn't young master Stalin that takes control or things like this, but that's how it works. And North Korea is particular. It's unique in that way. So for you, is that something that's, it's very similar to a Chebol or a traditional Korean approach though, isn't it? So for you, is that something understandable from a Korean perspective, or do you think it should adopt that more? international movement of what leftists do by having, I don't know, a bureau, a committee, and uh, succession is done that way. But it seems to me that we can't analogize it, although like the succession of sons might seem similar uh, between the Kims and the Lees in South Korea, because like the, the political systems they've, they're operating within are, are, are a bit different. I think that's not the case for North Korea. Not that North Korea, what they're doing is great, but that the system is different, that the reason for a succession of the sons uh, would be slightly different, even if it seems like a monarchy on a very superficial formal level. Uh, now, is that uh, understandable? I guess in some sense it is. Like we have in Cuba, we have Fidel and Raul Castro's mm-hmm. like, each other. After one, like it's a contentious topic within the left, how to deal with very charismatic figures. Now, Kim Il Sung, Kim Jong Il, Kim Jong Un, like the three of them, we'll have to assess them on their own terms. I honestly don't know enough what to make of all that, but it's also to me, it's not that interesting. Okay. Uh, we have far more interesting dynasties uh, in, in the South Korean regime already. And those are the people that we have to deal with directly. They have much more power over our lives. You you just mentioned Cuba there and, and, and some other places. So perhaps we'll try to come on to this last topic now, if we can, which is international solidarity. And so I'm really thankful that you've spent so much time talking about Korea with me. Um, because I know you have this 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 focus on international solidarity. So I guess we should probably start with like what what is that? What does that mean? Because it kind of makes sense, but I don't know if I understand it as you perceive international solidarity, or even if I'm using the right words. No, international solidarity is fine. I think uh, I, I, I use it alongside internationalism mm-hmm. and also w- trying to focus more on where I am in South Korea and with our uh, market connections in East Asia. Uh, I've also translated this piece about East Asian, East Asians already. But the point is that we're operating in a world system of capitalism, where this capital, I I don't want to get into technical details, but it has its logic of its own. And although there are ruling classes within the system, they're also limited by the logic that capital imposes upon them. And this, this logic constantly expands so that we can speak perhaps speak of only in the 21st century has the transition to capitalism has been finished because we no longer have these sectors of the world being delinked from the system mm-hmm. so with all those post-socialist transitions to capitalism have taken place we're only now under a complete world system of capitalism now on, under those conditions like you can't resist that against it fully at a local level. You can't address the climate crisis on a local level. You can implement changes, and you have to organize at that level certainly. But th- what those thing, what those changes happen, are going to be inconsequential, and you can't 
escape from that completely. So on that understanding that we're all in this small blue spaceship together, you'll have to start posing, like internationalism is not a program, but for me, a perspective of having to start making those connections. And then it's, it's going to be much more meager when social movement spaces are weakened at this moment. But by trying to identify political actors, that state actors are potential allies, but not always because states hold their own logics of legitimacy and repression to trying to hold a certain jurisdiction. But for social movements which have much more uh, maneuverable capacity, I think you can build relationships that are much more mutually reaffirming. And on that basis, we're trying to create something global in scale. It's what we start, we start locally. It, for inter internationalism in South Korea, a couple of years back, we had this great trade war with Japan, yeah. uh, a trade battle, if, if that's the case. And you could, you could see that under the Moon administration, there was discussions of having a 52-hour work week. But those restrictions were loosened for crucial sectors, such as the semiconductor factories. And that was because Samsung has a very big political influence. But what was the rhetoric for justifying the case? Was it mobilizing the patriotism against Japan? And that was subsumed under the logic of Samsung capital. Now, if we were to have a sort of internationalist perspective, or we already had stronger ties, then we would have been able to see the, that Japan is not a mon monolithic, that there already existed, exists resistance against the Abe in Japan as well. There is labor movements there. There are civil society organizations there. If we were to have been able to convince the public that what we identify with is not South Korea's administration, we, we don't identify, we're not selling out to the enemies, what we're trying to do is, yes, Abe is a problem. Yes, what he has said is worth it. And we already hold that perspective of uh, feminist, anti-colonial. That's the only uh, framework to understand and properly mourn what happened under the brutality of Imperial Japan. Then we would be able to identify political actors within Japan to work with. Another example would be Samsung's uh, factories, relocations from South Korea to Vietnam, to India, uh, and other Southeast Asian uh, countries. If you don't have that perspective, then if capital flights relocates their factories abroad, then you're, you're, you're like the dog barking up the tree because the chicken has already flown to, to the rooftop. So it's, it's, it's a necessity in that sense. Uh, it's not just an aspiration. It's not just long-term, but it's also very immediate. It's also important to break out of geopolitics that operates on, on just the state actor level. How do we break out of that circuit of mutual destruction where escalating uh, tensions lead to military clashes? We're, we might be seeing some clash over at the Taiwan Strait in, in the next decade, and it's very concerning because South Korea earlier this year, uh, Moon had come out acknowledging that there should be peace in the Taiwan Strait, which is kind of buying into that if US goes into a battle against China, Korea can get pulled in. This is also, there's technical issues of uh, in, in wartime, the Korean military being subsumed under American forces in Korea command, which is also under the command of the Asia Pacific if we, if we can't break out of that state level actors, then we all leave our fates into the hands of uh, government bureaucrats and politicians. But if we are able to stop this fervor for war, which usually patriotism gets the better hand of, and be able to recognize that this, this isn't going to be uh, for the best of any of us, then we'll be able to reach out to, I don't know, I really, it's a really tough spot regards to China and the anti-Chinese sentiment here in South Korea. But if we were able to break out of that shell and reach out to Chi the Chinese masses that were organized in a semi-autonomous fashion, 
that we're also against a war, then perhaps we could stop that clash from happening in the first place. So we would be able to add different stratas to the logic of geopolitics as well. So internationalism is not a sort of utopian ideal that we strive for. It's a very practical necessity to be able to stop the worst from happening. It's the very basis from where we can draw our politics. And that's why it's it's not a program directly, although one can perhaps create one in the, during the process, but it's a it's a ethics or a perspective.